This episode is sponsored by our friends at Dukan. Launch your online store in 30 seconds. No coding or design skills required. Whether you are a small business trying to go online, a teacher looking to set up digital presence, or you just want to sell a goat, Dukan is your one-stop solution. At the start of the pandemic, when small businesses were struggling, Dukan helped over a million merchants move from offline to online. Founder of Dukan is also a billion moonshots alumni. He shared his story of making $25,000 per month in college to now building a $100 million startup. So start your 14-day free trial now at mydukan.io. All right, Tyler. So after graduation, you led product and growth at Morning Brew, where you built that world-class referral program. You then did product at Google for a bit. And last year, you started Beehive, where you took all that deep newsletter knowledge and turned that into a platform. But before we talk about all the good stuff at Beehive, let's go into Morning Brew. So I'm curious, actually, even before Morning Brew, where was your mind at in just after graduating university? What were the other parts that you were exploring? Yeah, for sure. So I actually started a company my junior year in college, uh, a company called VentureStorm. The backstory there, me and a few buddies were involved in like the entrepreneurship programs at University of Maryland, great entrepreneurship courses and programs. They also had an incredible computer science program. And with startups, most more commonly startups are very tech forward these days, whether it's like a mobile app or a website, we weren't technical at the time. And we had an interest in building a mobile app. We couldn't connect with the technical co-founder. And so it kind of became, why is it that we're on campus with some of the smartest software developers around, but we couldn't connect and actually build this business. So we started a, was at the time, a campus centralized networking type app to connect entrepreneurs and startups to software developers, kind of a mix of like co-founder matchmaking along with like freelance type work, um, quickly pivoted realizing students don't have a ton of money. So we right. more like centralized DC, New York, whatever. Um, and did that, we did that all junior, senior year. And then post-graduation, me and my two co-founders did that for about six months or so, scaled it to about 10,000 users. We did some revenue, uh, our first time building a company. We were all, we ended up building the app ourselves. So we taught ourselves how to code. Um, incredible experience, no billion dollar exit, but as far as learning how to start a business, how to do marketing, how to get user feedback, how to build a product and software and iterate like would not be where I am today without that experience, even though it wasn't like a massive success. Definitely makes sense. Now I have a question for you over here, which is very personal. So uh, I just graduated and after graduation, I'm thinking that, okay, uh, there were so many things, especially first and second year, I wasted my time because we were just being ping pong and I was just always stressed that, okay, I want a good opportunity. I want a good internship. I was not actually uh, happy and like, you know, doing the thing. Third and fourth year, things change. Uh, but I want to know, like, what would you do differently based on all the knowledge that you have right now? How would you optimize your university time? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's, it's a little bit of like a catch 22 where my junior and senior year when I started this company with my two co-founders was incredibly fulfilling and interesting and like really pushed us. That being said, we spent our weekends because well, part of our target demo was software developers and college software developers. So we actually sponsored a ton of university hackathons across the country. So we would actually drive, we drove up to Boston to sponsor a hackathon at um, MIT. We went to Toronto for a hackathon at like Hack the North, University of Michigan. And so what I'm getting at is we gave up a lot of our like college experience mm -hmm. our junior and senior year because we thought we had a very successful business on our hands. And so we would leave Thursday after class, drive up to Toronto, spend the weekend there, miss out on tailgates, fun, you know, college experiences, come back. And like, again, Monday through Friday, it was very stressful. It was classes and then it was working on this business. Granted, if it goes well and we make a, a huge exit, it's the greatest investment ever. It didn't. So like in retrospect, 
there's there's that. Um, but like, I guess another way to look at it is like, I waited until our junior year to really have that idea of inspiration. There are so many resources available on college campuses. And part of the reason that we were able to sponsor all these different hackathons is because we said we were a student and we got like pretty much free sponsorship or very discounted where we were next to like the AWS tent or the Microsoft tent who obviously weren't free. Um, so kind of like a, a both-sided answer of like, I wish I started earlier, just experimenting with different things and leaning in entrepreneurship sooner with the resources. But then in retrospect, like the time I did spend going all in on it, maybe because I started later, was very concentrated, very time consuming. And it definitely, the opportunity cost is a college experience where maybe it's a little bit more relaxed before getting into the real world. Um, but yeah, that was kind of my experience. Definitely, that makes sense. I'm hearing a lot about this, that like, you know, people after undergrad, they are specifically doing MBA, not for all the knowledge, but specifically to live that college life that, okay, for those two years, you want to actually make friends and not worry about career and stuff like that. So that's a new thing. Uh, I'm actually curious. So how did you get in touch with the Morning Brew founders? Did you know about them before? Or what's that story? Yeah, funny enough, I mean, it's nothing crazy. Austin Reef, who's one of the co-founders, is actually a friend from my hometown in Baltimore. So I had known him for a while. We actually went to Israel together through like some program back in maybe 2014, 2013, where we interned at a company in Tel Aviv. It was Austin, like maybe 15, 20 other people. It was right when he was starting up Morning Brew. And I remember I was starting my like tech company doing uh, the whole software thing, connecting entrepreneurs and startup. Thought it was like a billion dollar idea going to take off. Right. He was, we were on the beach and he was telling me about some email newsletter company. And I was like, oh, that sounds kind of stupid. Like he would like, who would start a company just sending an email newsletter all the time? Right. Um, so it's very funny that fast forward three years and I ended up joining them and working for them. And obviously Morning Brew was a huge success, but I had known Austin just from that experience and obviously just from growing up back in Baltimore. Um, and I was actually post giving up on Venture Storm and moving on from that experience after graduating. I was kind of freelancing. I was building Shopify sites for random businesses. I was applying for full-time jobs. And I just was driving home from DC one day and Austin called me, just kind of just giving, like, catching up, telling me about the business. At the time, he was like really optimistic about like how Barstool made most of their revenue through merch. And he's like, Morning Brew should have a merch line. We should do this. And I was doing Shopify stores at the time. I was like, oh, I'll just make like a shop for you and like help you build that out. And then he was like, we actually have a lot of other engineering related work, but we don't have an engineer on the team. Would you be interested? And like part-time, I was living at my parents' house, like in the basement, looking for jobs. I was like, yeah, I'm happy to help you out and build whatever. So I kind of like accidentally stumbled into it. I never planned on working for Morning Brew. I ended up doing like, 30, 40 hours a week of contract work, which turned into 50, 60 hours. And then I was building the referral program. I was working on like social share. It became like an all encompassing role. Um, and at the end of the summer, probably three months after starting, I was just about to start at uh, a different like big four consulting company. And he just out of blue, out of the blue was like, would you want to work for us? And totally wasn't expecting it, nor was I like, I actually was a pretty tough sell. Um, right. I just had a lot of student debt very sure thing big four at the time it was like two guys in a closet size office sending emails and like anything but a sure thing that it looks like it is now or what that it is now um so yeah that that was kind of my journey of how i got there like totally stumbled into it but like the big takeaway was just being opportunistic saying yes to things being open to trying and working freelance on like something that i didn't even have an end goal in mind it was really like this seems like a cool opportunity to learn and push myself and work with a company that was doing cool things Right. That makes sense. Like right now we're seeing so many people are not taking the big tech route, but going into startups, trying to build into Web3. What was what was the biggest reason why you said yes to Austin? Like obviously you had these legitimate reasons that, hey, uh, there's a big debt I want to repay and other things. Like I'm not sure if the startup is going to work or not, but why did you say yes? Yeah, there's probably three things. 
one, Austin was very convincing and like spent weeks kind of walking me through like worst case scenario. If, if we lost every advertiser tomorrow, we could write the ship and pay everyone for like 18 months. And like, well, he basically walked through like doomsday scenarios of like, there's a risk, but it's like a mitigated risk. And, and there's a path forward, even with the worst case scenario Two, in my time working with morning brew, I obviously had access to like the email inbox and this and that, and just seeing the receptiveness of the readers saying how much they loved the newsletter, how it was incredible, right. how they rely on it to do their job. Like the overwhelming user feedback was very tangible. And like, how often do you engage with a company or a product that it's like, so, so, but when you see something that really resonates with people, there's usually something there. Um, so I thought that was like a very telling indication that this could be very successful. And then three was honestly just advice from a friend. I was kind of like walking through one of my older friends was walking through the different scenarios. And he was like, you could be one of 50,000 people at this big four company doing the exact same thing. Or you could be one of one being the only person in the world building what you're building. And like, that's the place you want to be in. And it was like very convincing and like, I'm pretty risk tolerant. Um, so all things considered, it kind of pushed me in that. And obviously I, I probably wouldn't be here without that. That makes sense. When was the first time you thought that, okay, this morning brew thing, this is working. Like you mentioned there were a lot of feedback, but when was the first time? Probably just like seeing how many people that I knew, but didn't tell them about the product or morning brew that were actually reading it. And it grew very quickly. It also just had that tangible feedback of people. Like it's one thing to say, I don't watch the news, but I read this newsletter and it helps me out. But like the amount and the volume of feedback of, I literally start every day with this. It's the first thing I read in the morning. I can't do my job without like understanding current events. It helps me get, uh, talk to coworkers or like, I don't know, there were so many different touch points where it wasn't just like a one size fits all, but so many different reasons why readers were really resonating with the content. Um, so yeah, I mean that, and just seeing the people around me that I wasn't even pushing them onto the product that were just naturally finding out about it and loving it was kind of like, I mean, I see it with Beehive now, but like when users really resonate and love a product or something, I think it's like very telling just because you, you interact with dozens of products and software every day. There's very few, I think you go out of your way to really rave about to other people. And I think that's right. a pretty compelling indication. Right. I actually want to know. So how did you explain morning brew to your parents? Were they like, oh, this is, he's just writing a email every single day. Yeah, I guess it, of, of all the things that I could be doing in software and tech and whatever, like an email is probably the easiest for them to understand because they can just sign up and they'll get it. Right. Um, but yeah, right. I mean, just business news that isn't terrible. Uh, business news that's like entertaining and, and personable. Um, yeah. And fortunately, it doesn't cost you anything to try it. You put your email in, you get it a few days. And within a few days, I think you get it or you don't get it. And most people seem to get it. Right, right. Uh, like about Morning Brew now, there have been a lot of like, you know, case studies around Morning Brew. People are trying to study it because people are trying to grow into this content world. What's a story that not many know about the founders specifically in those early days? Yeah, I guess less so the founder. I mean, early days when there was like sub six of us, it was just such a classic startup grind of we would typically set the newsletter at 11 p.m. every night is when it would set. And so up until then, everyone's kind of doing their own job process. The writers um, and the content team is like writing out the stories, they're editing it, they're triple checking things. Um, we would routinely get invited by a lot of our clients, like our, our advertisers in the early days to go to dinners throughout New York City. Probably once a week, we went to like a Rangers game. We would always bring our laptops with us because we couldn't be without them because we had to check the stories and make sure like no additional news broke. And also like for me and the main writer, Neil at the time, like the, it, we had, there was no one else to do the newsletter or set it or test it or whatever. And so between the hours of like 6 PM and 9 PM, like we just had to be on our computers, like doing the final test. So we would be at like the Rangers game, like five rows from the ice and like actually like on our computers, like setting the email, sending test emails, 
we went to like a few events, like we'd go to a bar, like before like a happy hour, or whatever. And we would just be like hilariously in the back of the bar, like on the floor, laptops out, like setting the newsletter, um, which is just funny. Cause like for us, it was just like the way of life. Right. It's also just, like, I don't know. There's like a whole nother way of life where, you know, like at 5 PM you close your laptop and it's like absurd to think that you'd be at nine o'clock at a Rangers game doing work. Um, but I think we all saw the vision of what this could be. And like, we're really passionate about it. Um, that's just one random story. And it's kind of like a collection of stories, but the amount of funny places you found us with our laptops open on the floor throughout New York city for a good two and a half years there, uh, is pretty ridiculous. That's crazy. So we also had Ryan Duffy on the pod and he is at payload where he writes about space. And he basically mentioned that once there's something random happened in Russia and that was at 4 AM in New York or 4 AM EST, and they had to literally like, you know, write or finish up an or totally scrap their existing newsletter and write a totally new thing before releasing at 9 a.m. So do things like that happen or did things like that happen with Morning Brew as well? I'm guessing that's the hardest part of writing newsletters, right? The hardest part is people. So I guess there's a few ways to go about it. There are a few morning newsletters where I believe the writer gets up at like 3 a.m. and they actually do write it in the morning, which also sounds very stressful because, you know, if, right. you're going, if, if your readers are expecting at 7 a.m., like you have a deadline and it's quickly hard deadline. Yeah. It also sounds fairly peaceful. Like you probably have no distractions between three and 7 a.m. in the morning. We were a team that basically aggregated the stories that happened throughout the day, determined by like, I, I mean, I'm speaking on behalf of the writing, but from what I remember around like three, 4 p.m., they figure out, okay, here's what's important. Let's write the stories, finalize it 6, 7 p.m. And then just you're in monitoring mode from that point on. Like the newsletter's set, it's scheduled to go out at 6 a.m. Eastern time. But between like 8 p.m. hypothetically and 6 a.m., obviously a lot can happen internationally. And so fortunately, Neil, who's I believe managing editor now and was like the first hire more or less, um, he was pretty meticulous at following the news. He had updates being sent to him all the time, a very stressful way of life for sure. Like thinking you're going to bed at 11 PM or whatever, only to find out that something in Europe just happened in the morning. And now you have to like take out your laptop, write a story about it, determine which story you want to remove from the newsletter. So, and I, I also believe if, that he woke up probably before the 6 AM as well, just to make sure nothing happened while he was sleeping. Because like for them, one of the worst things that could happen is like something breaking overnight. That's like massive news, and you don't mention it at all. It kind of make, makes you seem like you're out of touch with what's going on. So again, a little bit out of my confidence. Like I was more like the tech product growth side of things, but mm. being part of an early stage startup, like I sat right next to the content team and right next to the sales team, so I have a pretty good understanding of what the processes are, what the stressors were, how ridiculous the processes were in the early days, and, and everything. Definitely. Now you were there from when Morning Brew grew from 50,000 subscribers to now, or whenever you ended, it was like 3 million, right? Yeah, I think we're north of 3 million. So, all right. So what have you learned about growth? Like top three lessons about growth? Yeah, there's a few things. One I would say is when thinking about growth, I think everyone thinks acquisition, top of funnel, where are net new subscribers or users coming from? Another part of growth is retention. And like people don't really look at that as much as growth because it's not like net new, but it's a lot easier to grow and remain at that level when you're not losing users. And so that's like a huge shout out to like the content team and the writing. Like if you don't, you can have the greatest marketing campaigns and landing pages and funnels to get like, you know, an absurdly high conversion rate of people coming into your newsletter ecosystem. But if they don't like the content or if it feels stale or whatever, and they churn, then you're just fighting an uphill battle of growing, but also losing users. So one thing is like, the product is amazing. The writers are incredibly talented. They keep it very fresh. They're always like testing different uh, formats and story types and, and sections. That helps because it'd just be incredibly frustrating to get new users and have them churn. So it helps to have a great product. And it really starts there. Beyond that, we were extremely open-minded about any possible acquisition channel. And so no matter how ridiculous it was, whether it is sponsoring the New York City subway Wi-Fi or sponsoring 
in Ubers and taxis, those little like octopus quiz games that have ads all over them. Like my intuition would say neither of those channels would work well. And my intuition for both of those were right. Neither of them did work well for us, but we at least had the data pipeline in place to be able to test it. We went in with every conversation with uh, different campaigns or like billboards, uh, the quizzes, Wi-Fi saying, we'll do it for two weeks. We'll look at the data. And if the data is promising, then we can double down and pay more and commit to longer. But we have to have the ability to pull out of whatever commitment in two weeks. Right. And so what really unlocked that was having the right data in place to say, what sh what is like indicative of a successful campaign or a stronger engaged cohort of subscribers? Can we measure that effectively? And if so, then I'm willing to try billboard ads if we can attribute to them. Because if they don't work, we will know right away and we can cut it off. And so that was a huge unlock because like without that data and without being able to really tell right away whether it's going to work or not, you have to be very selective of, oh, I don't think that's going to work. So we're not going to allocate money to trying it. But there are so many things that we didn't think would work on the surface, whether it was like sponsoring a certain email or some sort of co-registration online, where on the surface, I'd say that sounds like a, like a huge waste of money, but it ended up being a huge growth driver, like very cost efficient, very high quality subscribers. And if you say no to things that you don't have conviction on, you would have never discovered that. So that was a huge unlock for us is just understanding the data and being confident to try everything. And we were also in a, in a position of fortune to be able to try, like we had a budget and we had a team from the co-founders who were very supportive of us saying, we're going to throw $15,000 at a New York City Wi-Fi. It could completely flop, but it might work. And them having the buy-in for us to be able to do that was like pretty huge. So just a culture of, of basically testing and, and iterating on different campaigns. That makes a lot of sense. Specifically for, you mentioned the morning brew or the New York subway Wi-Fi, but I'm also thinking about this. Like I was operating in this world as well. And it very much about the timing. Uh, the fact, this factor also depends. Like, you know, sometimes you say that, hey, you have to go big to see the results. If you just go small, you are not even creating that impact in people's mind. Like uh, the best example would be, let's say Audible. What Audible try, tries to do is Audible or Notion. They are trying to sponsor every single YouTube video out there, like whichever are like high quality, 10 minute, 15 minute videos. Uh, and what happens is like people are not converting on the first video, people are converting on the 15th or the eighth video. So you have to be there in the market. Your time in the market also depends and your timing in the market also depends. What do you think about that? Yeah, it's, 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 it's tough to compare one-to-one -one in mm. the sense that you have to understand like what your LTV is and like what is like a, a worthwhile investment. Emails are weird, right? Like we, we weren't even a paid newsletter, so we weren't even getting subscription revenue and like it was harder to tie a dollar amount. It was basically saying, let's say to make math easy, we were getting sponsorships in aggregation, like 100K a day per newsletter. And so you have to back into like, what's our open rate? How much does is an open worth to us? And say like, if you open a newsletter that is worth like a penny to us towards like, you know, however we're charging for the advertisements. So how many newsletters do we need you to open to break even? If you're a penny per open and we, it costs $2 to acquire you, then you need to open 200 newsletters. And then you have to work backwards and say, of that cohort in that channel, people typically stay around for three and a half months on average, which is right. much shorter than 200 days. So we're probably net negative on that. But then there's so many additional levers too, right? So let's say that channel, one in three subscribers also refer an average of two people. So then it's like, okay, now that if you consider that you are going to refer two people, then we only need 75 opens or whatever that number is. And, and so there's like so many different levers in figuring that out. But I bring that up because for us as an ad-based newsletter, we were basically tying engage users to opens to how many opens till we break even. And the real answer is like a subscriber to us was worth probably between two and $4. We were comfortable paying for an email because emails are also weird, right? Like an email can sign up and never open a single email ever. Right. It's a waste of $4. So 
I just give that example as like, it's very different than saying we have a product like Audible where you're paying us $9.99 a month. And like, yeah, we are willing to spend X dollars on 15 different podcasts because on that fifth listen, you may convert and we are ROI positive month two of your subscription. Um, so it varies per business for sure. That makes sense. That makes sense. I I believe that like, you know, uh, you definitely have, a, you have worked for two years. You have come up with the math around this conversion, around this numbers. I still believe that even for my podcast, I cannot come up with an algorithm because it definitely depends on like, you know, some sort of timing, some sort of just purchasing power. Like some sponsors would just sponsor so much. And I'm like, wait, was I charging very little all this along? So it all comes down to sometimes luck maybe. Uh, but yeah, this is an interesting space. Now I'm curious, like how did you think about the competition, especially hustle at that time? Yeah, it was funny. I think early days, the skim were the real innovators and first movers that we looked at. And okay. first year, I'd say we look at what they do. They have a cool referral program. They do this with their referral program. Now they're shuffling like incentives. They have this section. Um, they're launching like a podcast. Like we definitely looked for them in the early days and kind of use them as like our inspiration in a lot of places. Um, I mean, there's plenty of other newsletters that, that blew up. Uh, the Hustle, I think we would keep... I think historically outside of like the skim year one, I have always kind of focused on like, I was confident in what our team was focused on and our roadmap and like do a pretty good job of keeping my head down and focusing on executing and not too much of what competitors are doing. I think you can, in general in business, you can drive yourself crazy looking at competitors all right. day. Um, and so a lot of popular newsletters emerged. A lot of them covered similar content areas that we did. Um, and it was, it was probably healthy to keep uh, tabs on them of, okay, they're introducing this. Here's like a new layout. Here's like a new way that they're boosting engagement or opens. We'd see their advertisements out in the wild and say, that's like a really interesting way to communicate what their value prop is. But at the end of the day, I mean, I guess there was a finite limit of how many newsletters most people will subscribe to because you have a finite amount of time in the morning or in the afternoon to read whatever you're going to read and like your inbox can get pretty crowded. So there wasn't like no competition, but for like a three to five minute read, um, for the space that we were covering, I think we were just really confident that our writers were creating better content than other newsletters and that we had better tech, marketing, creativity, data to make decisions to grow faster. Um, I'd like to think we were proven correct there. Uh, I mean, Morning Brew did very well um, and is still doing great. So yeah, that's kind of how I looked at it. Definitely. That makes sense. Now let's talk about the work that you did. So you build the CMS over there, the analytics over there, but what you are known for is the referral program. What was the story behind the referral program? How did that idea come up? Yeah. It's funny that you say that I got, I, it's definitely, I mean, I'm not the first person to create a referral program. There was already a bare bones referral program in place before I got there. And we did, like I just mentioned, look to the skim a lot for inspiration. Right. So like we weren't like building anything crazy it wasn't rocket science and it wasn't like we were the first ones to come up with it but it was like very early on when i was still doing contract part-time work for them like where's an opportunity to grow and we just saw so many people when we would ask them how they found out about the newsletter it was like through a recommendation or a referral and so austin and i very quickly determined like that's where we should spend a lot of time like how do we make our like bare bones i think we were giving away maybe like a t-shirt or something I don't know. Like, and the page was kind of broken it wasn't like really in your face we made that a priority like day one and just figure it yeah. out how can we optimize it? How can we keep it fresh? How can we educate readers about it? And I mean, where it ended up was like a very long journey from where it started in the sense that like, it was very iterative. We would figure out, we'd constantly ask readers what they wanted. And honestly, the magic behind the referral program was really behind the scenes. Like being able to do the bare bones, like show referral count, educate readers, give them a referral hub to track progress, 
do like the spam detection to make sure it's legit referrals. And then obviously the logistics of sending out, adding them to the correct list or sending out the swag, like having that all down, I'd consider not easy, but like table stakes. And then beyond that, it was like a lot of the behind the scene triggers and emails that we were sending. So this person's very incentivized. They're one of our top power users. They have zero referrals. How do we nudge them to get a referral? And then once they get one referral, how do we get them to two, three, four, and five? And there was a lot of automated emails that we were A, B, C, D testing behind the scenes. We test the subject line, we test the content, we do image versus text heavy. We do this colored button versus this colored button. Like we tested everything. And like at any given time, we had a few dozen tests live. And then we would do things like mix in like a MacBook Pro giveaway to just get more people into the ecosystem and familiar with how it works. There, I mean, there's a lot to it. It's, it's both very simple and then a lot of intricacies behind the scenes. And it was a lot more calculated than I think people think it was. A lot of people just say at five referrals, right. we were doing everything we possibly could to say, how can we ensure that one in three readers were actually going to refer? And how do we get the average referrals per reader from like one to like seven? And like, there was just a lot that went into that. Right. Now, you guys were totally an online business, just writing emails, reading news, writing emails, doing some design, doing some tech work. Why did you guys decide to get into the logistics ecosystem where now you have to manage that, okay, this guy needs a hoodie, this guy needs a mug, stuff like that? Because right now, I believe that the best newsletters that I see on Beehive, they are doing only online stuff. So they, are, they might be giving away a guidebook, a quick ebook, uh, something online. But you were now at Morning Review, guys were managing a totally different beast over here with logistics. Yeah, I mean, the, the short answer is we shouldn't have. Like, we should have much sooner um, offloaded that onto like a drop shipping company or a partner, or just figured more digitally native incentives to give out as a referral program. I think, honestly, I, I feel like a lot just goes back to like we were imitating the skim early days. And so the skim right. had t shirts, they had hats, they had this. It was very easy to say, okay, if that's what a successful referral program looks like, they were the behemoth in the space. They have 6 million subscribers. Like, let's just do that. Um, and then we backed our way into, okay, if we're only sending physical goods at 15, less people get there, it's less of a headache. There was like a good few month period where every Friday at like four o'clock in this WeWork, we'd grab beer and we'd all package up like mugs or t-shirts and stickers and ship them. That was like a fun and annoying team bonding type thing. <laughs> we eventually had a few interns from like NYU come in and help us with some of that stuff. Um, I'm pretty sure. And then towards the end, we outsourced almost all of the physical goods. Um, but we were also in a very a place of, of great fortune where people actually wanted to wear our t-shirts and use our mugs and whatever else. I think for a lot of newsletters, it's hard to build that brand loyalty as a newsletter. Right. And so if we were able to do it, you can almost back into it as like, it's a marketing expense as well, because idea that people wear the t-shirt, use the mug in the office and people will naturally ask like, what is morning brew? That's like the idealistic hope with sending some of that merch. Um, I'm sure it definitely, I mean, it didn't hurt brand awareness. I don't know how much it helps, but. Right. No, that, that totally makes sense. I'm actually curious. Is there was there any data behind that? People who got like the hoodie, the mugs, they were they ended up becoming more engaged reader of Morning Brew. It's a great question. I'm sure there is data to prove it. Off my my three years since being in the weeds of that data, um, I can't remember. I mean, there's a pretty direct correlation with the people who were even willing to go through the trouble of referring mm -hmm. 15, 20, 25 people. Like they're pretty self-selected and, and highly engaged readers who clearly want to wear a Morning Brew hoodie or use right. like a coffee mug, like they wouldn't do it if they didn't care about the brand. So odds are like, there's probably a pretty strong correlation there. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right. So uh, after Morning Brew, you went on to do product management at Google. What was that? Uh, how did you make that decision? That's and a great question. Why? What was that was a great question. Um, yeah, I mean, I did three and a half years at Morning Brew. It was an amazing experience. Wanted to try something different. Um, so was looking at different opportunities. 
Google kind of came along accidentally. My roommate was working there. There was like an open opportunity at YouTube Music um, to do product management. Product is like where I found myself. I was kind of like a weird com combo of like engineering, growth-minded, but like loved product because it kind of touched both of those in some way. Um, and just speaking to different people that have worked at big tech or like in the Bay or whatever, like Google came off as like the gold standard of product management as far as like process-oriented, like well-oiled in terms of the documents, the wireframes, the mock-ups, all the process that goes into it and then working with really talented engineers and like people there. Um, so for me, I was like, I was able to join a company of three people. We scaled it up to like 40, 50, 60, I think when I left, um, saw like what a product role looked like for morning brew when I was kind of making the role. Like I didn't even, I like self-assigned myself pro product there. Didn't really know what I was doing, but like figured it out on the fly. And it was like really mm. interesting, fun and fulfilling and whatever. Um, but I was like, okay, so I've seen it at three people to 60 it'd be like for my career, a really interesting opportunity to go into like a behemoth tech company that's working on really cool things. I love music. So the YouTube music play was interesting and giving it an opportunity to understand how do they view product management? What does like an ideal refined process look like? So I kind of viewed it as like a stepping stone to learn the best in class processes um, very quickly. I mean, I, I, my hunch was I was a startup person and not a big corporation person um, and that that hypothesis was validated very quickly there of just pace of work responsibilities. I'd rather be stressed over work, building really cool things. Everything falls on my shoulders and we either take off and succeed or fail because of like my efforts, everything, like, as you would imagine, a big tech company, very slow moving, um, a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape, a lot of like, we should be doing this and moving faster, but there's not enough buy-in or not enough whatever in place to do that. So we're deprioritizing that till next quarter when we have more of a budget. Like I never really kind of fit in there and I knew that. So I kind of viewed that as a stepping stone to really just take in all that I could. I met really cool, smart people there. I learned a lot. And some of the things I learned there I still apply today. I'm definitely more refined of like a product thinker now. Um, and that was kind of the takeaway from my time at YouTube. Uh, all right. So I was a product manager. I did product at Microsoft and I learned a lot of things from there. I'm just curious, like I know Google is the gold standard. What what is one or two things, the best product th things that you have learned from there? Like either the way they strategize, either the, the process flows, either the way they communicate or collaborate. What, what are one or two things that you find was really unique? Yeah, I think, and again, everything is just comparing and contrasting to what I did at Morning Brew, which was like the wild west of me just waking up and saying, I think we're going to do this and just doing it. Um, there, it was very much like, there's infinite ways we could go with this project. Like how do we refine and prioritize things? How do we understand like with the resources we have, whether it's like headcount or budget or this, the priorities coming from different teams or the C-suite, like how should we allocate our resources to build certain things? And then it became like, not political, but like selling why we should do certain things over others because there are limited resources. So of the five things we could be doing, me having to then communicate each five, like how we would go about it, stack ranking them. And then almost like making a case to like management of like, here's where I think we could implement and make the most drastic improvement in, in XYZ. So it's like a lot of it is just like learning how to very effectively communicate your ideas and making a case as to why you should go about, why you or me in this case should have enough resources and be allocated four engineers to build this versus why those four engineers shouldn't go elsewhere to build whatever else. So part of it's like political, but I think it does force you to really understand what the problem is you're trying to solve, being able to communicate it, just like one pager is like a thing that I never did at Morning Brew. Like I, I would, right. I would sit in a meeting. I'd say, "Here's a whiteboard. I think we should build this, and this is how we're going to do it." I'll write in my notebook, and then I'll just start building it or work with an engineer. There, it got me into like, let me give a high ten thousand foot view of why we're building it, so everyone understands. 
then let's go a little bit more granular and build like a 15 page PRD of like really defining like what's like the product requirements, what's like a P zero, what's like a fast follow, how do we measure success? Like it sounds very polished, but it's like a really good framework for understanding like getting everyone level set. Cause like maybe the way I'm viewing things isn't evident to other people on the team. Um, and just the process of like product requirement document to then handing it off to an engineer who then does like a technical scoping document. So they have a clear vision of what you're trying to build. Now they are going to transform that into here's the database models and here's like the controllers and everything we're going to build and how we're actually going to put it in the tech perspective. And then just the feedback loops there. So just the product requirement document, having 15 people adding comments, everything was done in Google docs, which I still do now. Um, so just hammering out comments, resolving them, making sure everyone's aligned, rinse, wash, repeat for the technical scope document. And just like having that line and chain of documentation, just to keep everyone accountable, everyone's aligned, like ended with like a really refined process and final product. Um, so I've, I mean, I think just given the nature of how big and large of a company that was, there may have been too much process and red tape and moving too slow for my liking, but there's ways to take bits and pieces of that and streamline it, make it a little bit more efficient. Um, and so I still do the whole, like our company at BI now, product, what, like one page or what are the different initiatives? Let's take those into product requirement documents. Let's hammer it out. Let's do a scoping document. Let's do the mock-ups, wireframes, whatever. So I've taken a lot of that and, and applied it here. Um, just less red tape, more speed. Right, right. You're basically selling people the vision and then you're like, hey, if you believe in this vision only, then you build it. Yeah, it's also great because like, I mean, I've always preached like not a top-down culture whatsoever. I have thoughts of like, here's where I think we should spend time, but I'm almost always selling to the team. I think we right. should build this because this is why. And if they disagree, I'm like very receptive to that. And then we say, okay, if we're not going to build this, what would you recommend? And then they'll make a case for why we should build XYZ. Then I'll adopt that, do a product requirement document and everything of the sort. So I'm almost like, I'm not saying here, I'm calling the shots. This is how we're building things. And this is what we're going to build. I'm very much trying to give, get buy-in that they also believe that this is the most important. And if I can't get that buy-in, then it's probably an indication that it's not the most important and that we should focus time elsewhere. Makes sense. Now I'm super curious about music. So you joined the YouTube music team and when I think about music in my daily life, I'm like, okay, I just use Spotify and I am just playing whatever the mood is like. If I'm in a car, maybe a better music on my, on my, during work, I'll be playing a more soothing music, maybe sometimes a good pump up song to get me out of my itis. But I want to know, like you had the job to write one pagers on how people will potentially use this app, which is all about music. So what have you learned about music or what, how are you thinking about music differently? Yeah, I've level set expectations to say that I did less of like the fun, sexy, how people are using the okay. app stuff. I was in like the underbelly of the music industry of like publishing rights and record labels and understanding if someone listens to this song in Canada, here's who owns the rights. Here's how it's split between the publisher, the artist, the master. Here's how much money YouTube gets from the ad revenue, how much the publisher gets, how much whatever. And then take that same song and play it in India or Russia or whatever, like there's just a different rights breakdown, both legally and like there's different contracts with every major record label. So like I went pretty deep into understanding rights, publishing rights, master's rights, who owns it, what's the revenue split? How does that differ if it's a subscription product? So if the listener who's listening in Canada is actually paying 9.99 a month for the premium YouTube, like there's no ad revenue. So how does that get split differently than if there was ad revenue versus if they only listen to 20 seconds? Like there's so much crazy tech going on right. there and a lot of it. I was doing more of, there's a whole team responsible that I work closely with of like the different rights, who are the rights owners and what are those revenue splits. And so we were doing like internal tooling to say, these songs are owned by this label and here's the record splits for them. So we played one part, one small part in like a massive ecosystem of what's going on in YouTube. 
Um, it's definitely, I mean, the, the people that I work with, there were also very much like music industry lifers who have been in the industry for 20, 30 years. Some not even from the tech perspective, from like the record label perspective of understanding how these rights works. And they got thrown into the YouTube ecosystem to assist with managing the different publishers and labels. Right. Yeah. We had recently someone who is building a startup in music NFTs. That is super interesting. But yeah, we'll not go deep into this because it's a complex world. And let's move on to Beehive now. So yeah. you mentioned that, all right, I'm reading over here. You mentioned that many Morning Brew readers who had the same newsletter ambition were reaching out saying, how can I plug into an ecosystem similar to Morning Brew? And so, yeah, the question is, how long did it take to make that decision that, all right, it's time to leave Google and start building something of my own? Um, the week after I left Google. So, or no, okay. the week after I left Morning Brew. Um, okay, okay. So I left Morning Brew. I had a week in between my start date, or like my last day at Morning Brew and my first day at Google. I actually had COVID that week, so I just sat in my apartment that entire week. Um, had a sense that Google would be a little bit slower more corporate and I'd have free time, like weekends, whatever, to kind of build something that I'm excited about. Um, so that was really where I kind of made the commitment of we should start building something here. Cause I think there's like a real opportunity. And the premise really was I spent three and a half years alongside two, three, four engineers at morning brew building like a very bespoke ecosystem that did exactly what we needed. It created emails that looked beautiful and rendered in all these different clients. We were able to track the, and like tag different types of content and links. We could track all the data we wanted. We had an incredible CMS that made it very easy to create newsletters. We had a referral program that made it really easy to grow and track referrals and progress and really streamline our growth. We had a ad management platform that managed the inventory of all the different advertisements. It was client facing. It allowed us to understand, okay, Apple has 15 different placements this quarter going live at these different dates. It integrated with the copywriting team. Everything was like very streamlined and automated. And like in the build versus buy debate, like outside of the email platform, like actually sending the infrastructure of the emails, we built everything in house. And so part out of like, partly because I was naive, partly because like when you're beholden to like a third party software, you're on their roadmap and you can't bend it exactly how you want. And I was like, we have very, like most publishers are web first, their own WordPress, their own web flow whatever, like we are an email first media publication and how many first email first tools are there that does everything we want. And we have very broad ambitions. So for me, it was very much like, okay, we could try to use this web CMS and export it and convert it to an email, or I could spend three months and just build our own CMS from scratch. I'll sit right next to the content team and ask them every day, is this what you want? Is this like in line with expectation of what would be like an easy writing experience? And so sitting next to the end user being our content team made it really easy. And everything like we have like that market section at the top of the newsletter, like, I don't know how many CMSs will automatically at four o'clock pull in the closing ticker prices and populate them in a table. But because that was a staple of our newsletter, we could build that directly into the product and it automated everything. And so in working through and building this entire ecosystem for three and a half years, like, like I already said, the content and the writers are incredibly talented. And like, that's what made the business successful, but the tech and that ecosystem streamlined everything we did internally and externally for growing in our readers experience. And I was like, how many publications or one-off content creators have four engineers working for three and a half years to build an ecosystem exactly for what they need? And the answer was like, probably none. And I was like, what would it look like if any content creator could be dropped into this ecosystem and have like an incredible email first content management system, have a referral program, like catered exactly to what they need, audience polls, advertisements, data, BI tools, everything. Um, and there wasn't a platform doing that there were a lot of fragmented third-party platforms that you can kind of tape together 
and the, you know, you get a referral program over here, your web hosting is over here, your SEO data is there, your BI metrics are here, your email is here. And like for most non-technical content creators, one, that's like a huge barrier to entry to be able to even tie all those together. And then second, like, even if you could, they don't work well together. You have like data silos. It's not like a super intuitive ecosystem. And so that's really where I saw the benefit of like more Group just worked. Like we had everything exactly operating like a well-oiled machine and it allow other content creators to plug into a similar machine. I think it would just be, I mean, it's not a catch-all, like it's not a silver bullet to success, but it sure streamlines a lot of the things and headaches that they experience. And that was really the impetus for what I wanted to build at Beehive. I think that's a great story, especially that one example of stock ticker, because yeah, nobody has that. That is such a unique thing that Morning Brew had. And now, especially with Milk Road, I'm seeing that, okay, they have the Bitcoin Ethereum thing going on. So it's pretty cool. What's the story behind the name Beehive? Um, no story, really. Um, honestly, in that one week, of, I'm someone who likes to get something very visual and mm. rather than like punting on a name or a logo, like for me, it feels real once we have a name and a logo, like that's what we're building. Like we can call it something right. and we can build towards that. And so with all of my side projects that I've ever worked on, like getting a name and like some sort of logo or color schemes, like top of mind. So that week that I had in between Morning Brew and Google, um, just trying to thinking through names. Honestly, I just saw like a hive as like a collection of people that are following something. You're like gathering a community or newsletter or whatever it is. So beehive like came to mind. It stuck. The right spelling for it wasn't available. The domain. And I'm someone who honestly like I think if you have a great product, the spelling you could call your company whatever you want. So the spelling didn't really matter to me. So that's kind of the short story of how we came up with the name. It's honestly like a five minute decision and a logo creation right after. That's cool. That's cool. Now. Why is email newsletter a great business? You have talked about this before, but curious to know. Yeah, I think there's a few things. One, like you own the audience. So, you know, you could have a massive following on Instagram and Instagram's constantly tweaking their algorithms. Like there's some posts, there's some accounts that I follow that I haven't seen a post for in months. Um, it's like, you're just kind of like beholden to the algorithm that they dictate and are constantly changing. And like, even as recent as like the whole shift, like be more TikTok centric, like if you're just posting like beautiful photographs as a photographer and you have like whatever a massive audience there now they're going all in on video like that audience that you've built up for years is like you know you're not in the best position to succeed email has always kind of been that like once you collect that email address assuming they opt in and they know what they're signing up for like not that you own it but like it's a more direct relationship where you can get in contact with them you can communicate it's also pretty platform agnostic like you could go from mailchimp to sail through to beehive to wherever you want um so like differing from like how um data portable like social platforms are like email you export your list and you can move it over to the next platform i think that's really powerful and i'm not gonna say it's like totally algorithm free like you're kind of at the hands of spam filters gmail aol yahoo like there's algorithms there but relative to social platforms it is fairly agnostic of that and i think just what you can do with an email is with a newsletter one like advertising is incredibly profitable once you hit scale and have an operation there and a means to place advertisements. Um, the move to subscription, if you can warrant a subscription is like, if you can be reliable and routinely send great content and get people to pay you a monthly fee, like that's an incredible business model that a lot of content creators have been able to pull off. Or if you just use email for top of funnel to push people into a course, to push an occasional product drop, to push some sort of community, like it just seems to me like the ultimate top of funnel where there are so many different things you can do with an email blast. and for better or worse, everyone's tied to their email. People have been trying to kill email for decades and I still sit in my email all day long. I don't watch the news. I, I spend 45 minutes every morning reading for like 25 different newsletters. Like 
that's like my, and that's like a personal habit, but I do think we're still early and people leaning on newsletters as a means of primarily, primarily getting information. I think there's so many voices too. If you think of like cable news, you have three, four or five major networks and you kind of get that day in, day out to discover different writers who cover politics or sports or business or finance that you resonate with. And if you don't like it, you unsubscribe and find someone similar that you like more. Like it's just such an easy process and way of getting communication. Um, and then I think looking at examples like a morning brew or the hustle or scam kind of show you the power of like, once I knew how much money morning brew was making on a daily basis, just for sending a single email, it's like mind blowing that I didn't try to collect emails going back to when I was five years old. If I would have known that I would have been collecting emails since elementary school, but it, it's how much it, can you review? What? How much were they making per day? Hard to say. And like, I don't know what it is now, but I mean, anywhere between like between 60 and $80,000 per email send. And like, I think the other thing I missed out on would be kind of like the, the, how scalable of a business it is. Like at, there was a point where there were six of us, the two founders, like maybe two writers, me and someone on growth. And we could have done a lifestyle business. Like the output on our end is the same. The writer's doing research. He is figuring out writing great stories. He formats the newsletter. We're focusing on growth and growing the list. And then we have some people on sales that are monetizing it. We could have run that business. And like what we are doing on a day-to-day -day basis remains the same, whether we're sending an email to a thousand people or 5 million people, like the newsletter is actually the same. And so I think that's fairly interesting where like, if you look at the alternative, like just using Beehive as an example, as like, as we scale and get more users, there's like a lot of different use cases that it's being used for. We need to constantly add to the product. We need to refine the product. But like a newsletter is a newsletter is a newsletter. And what you do for your first 10 subscribers, you could probably maintain that same format, same work ethic to 10 million subscribers. I think that's really attractive. It's like a very scalable model. That makes sense. I believe Ben Thompson also talks about this because he's been doing this for, I guess, 30 years now, 25, 30 years now. And that's what he does. Like, I believe he mentioned that just eight hours of work, that's it. It's just consistent intensity for the last 30 years. Nothing more, nothing less. But it's a really cool. So when you mentioned about the algorithm that with email, you are not relied on algorithm, I came up with an idea. So... There are so many newsletters. You are signing for so many newsletters out there. There's Morning Brew coming at, I forgot what's the exact time, but maybe 6 a.m. Uh, so there could be these newsletters who are now all piled up in your email. So how do you differentiate now? Now how you differentiate is with your time of hitting that send. So you can say that, okay, our newsletter comes at 10.07 and exactly 10.07 every single day they've been coming for one year. So that's how you can differentiate now. So like there could be a newsletter who just differentiates in your email pile based on that timing, that it's it's easier to find it's easier to read so that's just a crazy idea yeah I mean, i'm on the west coast now so i wake up early i wake up 6 a.m here but all of the emails have already been sent so i'm just playing catch up from the moment i wake up so it doesn't send time means less to me I'm okay like behind but yeah i agree okay nice uh so your we already mentioned about email it's better because it's not relied on a platform but what are the pros and cons of your business being entirely dependent or built on top of email yeah. I mean, the goal is obviously to go beyond just email. And, and I think there's a lot of ways that creators, publications, like can create content, monetize, grow their audience. So I don't think we'll always be tied to email. I think the biggest thing and the biggest pain point for us is just that email is fairly complex for as simple as it is. There's a lot going on under the hood. And I don't think most individual people are, understand that or understand the, the intricacies of sending an email, spam, deliverability, how to optimize certain things, how to optimize for growth. Like when you shift towards like individual creators, you're putting a lot of faith that they understand like how they should be growing, how they should be collecting emails, how they should be sending the emails and then what to expect with like data metrics deliverability. And so 
there's like a lot, there's a big knowledge gap there, I think. And like, people will always respond like, Hey, sometimes my emails go to the promotions tab. And like, it's actually a very complex thing that isn't like, it's not a platform thing. It can be if the platform isn't set up properly, like beehive is most main newsletter platforms are, but it's not like platform specific. A lot of it's like content. A lot of it is like domain reputation, IP reputation. Like there are so many different intricacies of the business and it's annoying to have to one, explain that at times or two wrongfully be blamed. Hey, like I moved to beehive and like my open rate dropped like 3% or like sometimes it goes to promotions. Like that actually has probably nothing to do with us. Um, but it's interesting because like we actually get a lot of the feedback that is the opposite. I moved to beehive, my open rate increased, my click-through rate increased. And I never take credit for that because realistically it shouldn't really be a platform specific thing. And so I'm just very careful to take credit for the ups because it can very well swing in the other direction. And like neither are really our fault. We do everything we can for deliverability. We have a bunch of deliverability consultants. We have a lot of like best practices, guardrails, um, in place, but yeah, I think in general, just like the lack of real knowledge around what is happening under the hood, just creates sometimes unrealistic expectations or just having to do support explaining things that honestly is out of our control. Um, probably the, the biggest nuisance of the email space, I'd say. Right. I think Ryan mentioned that after Apple's privacy policy changed, the email open rate just changed. Like they, it just inflated the metric. Has it affected you guys as well? Yeah, it's pretty much like an, an industry-wide thing with email. So I guess that's probably a more poignant point is Apple and their privacy stuff is like a huge pain in the ass to deal with. And they can constantly, which they have done with like their tracking, like their app tracking stuff with like how that's impacted Snapchat, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. Some companies like Apple have the ability to push out an update and just screw a lot of people's business models and data. And that is probably the other downside of like, there really is only so much data in email. You have open rate, you have click-through rate, you have unsubscribes, um, maybe time spent in email, maybe forwards, maybe referrals, um, mm -hmm. but there's not much data there. And if Apple, as large as they are, are going to start obfuscating one of like four metrics, makes it really difficult to understand like the quality of your list and get like a true gauge. I understand why they're doing it, right? Like privacy is right. great. I, I completely agree. Um, but... It, it's definitely when you don't own all of the pipes or like the platforms and distribution in which like readers are using to read the emails, it definitely makes playing by their rules or like what data they're allowing a little bit more difficult. The reason why I don't worry a ton is because it's not like a beehive problem. It's like an email problem. And so what we feel in terms of like the frustrations are kind of shared by everyone. There's ways you can probably back into and proxy these calculations in a way that you can get a more accurate measurement of what you think would be a true open rate or whatever, but it gets very granular. You can do like data science and kind of try to approximate that, but probably diminishing returns in those efforts. Right. Makes sense. Now, what were the growth channels that were working for Beehive in the early days? We talked about Morning Brew. You were testing out different channels, putting a little bit more money, seeing what works, what doesn't work. What worked for Beehive? Yeah, I'd say two things. One, we kind of hacked it in a way where we raised money by strategic investors that had a newsletter or a large audience on Twitter or whatever. And so we had like a very early cohort of like beta users who were using our product, pushing it out to the world. Um, so that helps a lot. Also, I think coming, leaning on my background at Morning Brew and just coming from a space where I saw where frustrations were coming with other users on other platforms. And I saw an opportunity where we could build very quickly, address those concerns, build flashy features, build very high impact features that I knew content creators and publications would resonate with. And so leveraging our creator network and our uh, early angel investors and Twitter and LinkedIn and whatever, it was a lot of like 
what you call a quote unquote product led growth, but really just like mm -hmm. doubling down on, I know this feature has been wanted by a ton of newsletters, or I knew this feature was like a massive hit at Morning Brew and I haven't seen a platform do that. So let's build that. Let's be very loud about it. Let's promote it to our different channels. Let's get our investors to promote it. And then that just broadcast it to new audiences. Those audiences see, oh, there's a platform that can actually do that. Like that sounds really interesting. Let me check them out. Some people funnel in, they try the product, they like it, they talk about it. So, I mean, we haven't paid for acquisition yet. Everything's been 100% organic. Um, so it's a lot of like product-led growth, different viral loops, getting like big name content creators using the platform. And then obviously delivering in the sense that the product looks and works really well. People love using it. And by word of mouth and people being happy using the product, it's just kind of spread pretty organically to date. I definitely see a lot of flashy launches. Like the latest one you guys did was website out of the box for newsletter writers. I thought that was super cool. And you also mentioned that you don't want to just stay with email. You want to move beyond it. So let's talk about that. Yeah. I mean, we probably have a lot of room to run an email. Um, I mean, uh, MailChimp got bought for $12 billion. They were doing a billion dollars in revenue. Like there's a huge market of people sending emails and there's a lot to be wanted. I think in the space of what tools could be available, what insights, what data, what features there's a lot, I think in email, and I think we'll probably be there for a good bit, natural extension of that audio community, video, more web experiences. Um, so I, I kind of see that's where we, we will eventually go is as our content creators or publications launch podcasts or different audio experiences, or they like have a premium community of some sort that they're engaging or launching courses. Like there's a lot of tangential things to email going back to my initial point that email to me seems very top of funnel. Um, there's so many things you can do with this distribution, whether it's pushing people into courses, whether it's job boards, whether it's video podcast, whatever. So I just think we're going to lean into the fact that email blasts can be used as top of funnel and how can we help grow your audience to also grow a community or downloads or whatever else it may be. And that's probably like a pretty natural extension of where we'll go. Definitely. I thought this was super interesting because when I was researching, you also mentioned that our goal is to take ad share and market share away from Facebook and Google. That was super interesting. How are you thinking about ads? Yeah, I think the big thing is like Morning Brew has like a massive sales team, right? And so if I'm a content creator sending 25,000 emails a few times a week to about politics or whatever I'm writing about, like if I can go the paid subscription route and get that recurring revenue, which would be amazing. But there's so many, like whether it's sports, politics, business, like there's so much content out there. I don't think there's a huge market of people willing to pay like 10, 15, 20 dollars a month for newsletter content. There's definitely a market. People are definitely paying. I've paid for right. content for years, but like, I don't think it's a massive market. I think it's really hard to win that. So if you can go for scale instead, scale to 25, 50,000 emails, then you can like make really meaningful revenue with this like very engaged audience. It just becomes difficult because who's doing that selling, right? Like you can, if you have relationships with these different brands, you can sell, but you have to understand your audience. You have to know what they're interested in, what's their demographic. Email is very opaque. So like, I don't know if you have that data as a content creator, like what they're interested in. We're building a lot of tools around that. Um, and then you have to go to these companies, you have to sell them to their marketing team, why they should advertise in your newsletter. You have to do a lot of back and forth. You have to do the copywriting. You have to actually run the campaign. You have to export all of the data. You have to package it up and report it to them. You have to do the invoicing. Like, that's why there's such a big team on Morning Brew and these other organizations doing that. So like, what's the alternative there? You can do banner ads, which don't perform well or pay well. You can outsource it to like an agency. Um, but they can take like a very large cut also, like, I don't know, it's an option and that's what like a lot of people do. So I just think there's a huge opportunity where we could be the monetization arm of the newsletter industry. Um, and I think the tools that we're already building 
lead, like play and lend themselves very well to being that extension. Um, and that's kind of what we're already building now and have some pretty exciting things in the works in the near future. Definitely makes sense. I, yeah, you mentioned that this is the newsletter industry where writers are focused on doing the good work and we need engineers to sort of revolutionize this place, but super cool. You also mentioned that you, you also read Ben Thompson's newsletter or you were reading, uh, have you tried selling him to get on beehive? No, he has his own like ecosystem, like well-oiled machine. I think he just launched yeah. like a year ago to like kind of refine that. So he has his own internal operations there. Um, I tried to get him to invest a year ago. We went back and forth on a few emails and then he stopped answering. So, um, yeah, <laughs> that, that's my, my, <laughs> my experience with Ben Thompson. Got it. Got it. Now you all now milk road is something that everybody knows. It's sort of a homegrown success for you guys. They went from zero to now one fifty K in less than six months, leveraging your infrastructure. What's the story behind that? What's the story of collaborating with them, learning with them and sort of also providing tools that they might need? Yeah. I initially connected with them. I tried to get them to invest a year ago as well. And they passed. Um, and then they came back a few months later saying they wanted to start a newsletter. Uh, they like all the way from like having no emails, no content, not even a web domain. They were initially like, where do we buy the domain? How should we set it up? Is it cool to do like a .io or .xyz? So like went through all of that very early days, very early adopters. They are very patient with us because like the product is still not 100% where it should be and we're getting there. But like back eight months ago, like we were very far from 100%. Um, so they were very patient there. But yeah, plugged into the ecosystem. I, I mean, there's a lot of things that play there. Sean has like a massively successful podcast in my first million. He has a large Twitter following. Ben's a great operator. Um, they have a bit of a budget to put into paid spend. So they're spending money for paid acquisition. Um, their content's great. They use the referral program. They use the polling feature we have. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's definitely like a homegrown success story. And like they came with no content, no subscribers, no web domain, and like built everything kind of on our ecosystem and platform, which is great. Um, and yeah, I mean, they're, they're crushing it. The content's amazing. They obviously have struck a chord with the crypto community and crypto curious. Um, and I'm just happy that we can support them and, and build a tool that works well for them, gets them the data that they need. They find ways to break our tools whenever they can in terms of like really pushing to the limits of how you segment your audience and how you get these data insights. So they, they pushed us to make our product a lot better in the different apps that they've had. And that's kind of what you want in an early adopter anyway, as someone who like, well, they have such broad ambitions of what they're trying to accomplish that they will identify the shortcomings of your product and tell you what you need to make better so that they can accomplish what they want. And so we've definitely had a ton of that with them, uh, but yeah. Definitely. So this makes a lot of sense. I'm actually curious. So what was your approach to fundraising? You fundraised the $2 million seed round very quickly. What, what's the story behind that? Yeah. I mean, fundraising is funny and interesting and, and frustrating. It's if you're a first time founder more or less, and like don't have a huge track record, then it can be difficult to get like your first few commits and like getting that first big yes takes a while. And then once you get mm -hmm. the first money in, then everyone wants to participate and it's like a very psychological thing. So I remember like probably took us like a good three, four weeks to get like a really, like a strong commit of like someone who would lead our round. And as soon as we had that, I start every conversation with that bit of information. And then everyone's like, oh, I, I'd love to participate. And it's like that same, that same partner who had no interest before. So it's like a weird psychological thing. Um, I think fundraising is super frustrating and I don't know. Right. Yeah. Uh, all right. So this was really good, man. This was really good. We dive deep into Morning Brew, deep into Beehive. Uh, I think last question, what are your thoughts on Web3? How are you thinking about that? Yeah. I mean, just like everyone else, like I, I followed the space for like probably five, six years from like different content creators, played with a bunch of different tools, have like my whatever hardware wallet and money that's worth 10% of what it was when I bought it, bought like random NFTs. Um, 
tossed me as like crypto curious, like I'm interested in the space. I've read like a few books on Bitcoin, cryptography. Like I think it's all like very interesting and in how it works. I think there's probably some great real world use cases. I think when people are tied in with financial incentives that the lines blur very quickly of like, what's an actual good use case that you can support versus why versus people supporting it for the sole purpose of because they're financially incentivized to support it. Um, so it's a weird space. Um, I think there's like a lot of really cool use cases for it, some more than others. And then I don't know. I mean, like we, we keep tabs on it, like as a business, like I think there's definitely applications in like the creator side of things and like the content creation side of things. I think there are like interesting, like token gating content, um, community related stuff, tipping via crypto. Like there's definitely things that we could probably get into. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting new space. No further comment really beyond that. Right. Right. Any, any Web3 products that are in the roadmap or you're just thinking about it? Uh, we're keeping tabs. We have like a, a board of like cool projects that we would maybe pursue if we had more resources. And like, there's probably a few on that page that we've looked at, but right. nothing that I'm either willing to publicly share or that's like coming the next month or two. Makes sense. All right, Tyler. Thank you so much for your time. This was really good. Yeah. Appreciate you having me on.